still glistens as they describe a game, now medieval history in baseball terms. Then they say, in one way or another, ah, there'll never be another one like Joe. There was a song for him in his glory days, a bit of doggerel fluff that blared out of a million table radios. He'll live in baseball's hall of fame. He's got there blow by blow. Our kids will tell their kids his name, Jolton Joe DiMaggio. Joe, Joe DiMaggio, we want you on our side. When he retired from the Yankees in 1951, he did not lose his hold on the public, nor did he even vanish from song. Long after he receded from the ball fields, but a bit too soon for our kids to be telling their kids his name, he reappeared in Paul Simon's forlorn déjà-vu lyric from a stylish 1968 movie called The Graduate, bemoaning the passage of time in the accepted manner of bittersweet balladists. Simon wrote, "Where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio? A nation turns its lonely eyes to you." Ooh, ooh, ooh. What's that you say, Mrs. Robinson? Jolton Joe has left and gone away. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. These lines touched throngs who had never seen him play. DiMaggio himself, who was made uncomfortable by certain public displays of sentiment, insists, I've never been able to figure out what that song means. In truth, long after baseball, Joe DiMaggio goes anywhere he wants. Old ball players often become citizens of a twilight land, with their high deeds, their youthful sunbursts, left far behind in other eras on baseball diamonds that no longer exist. To the young, they become curios, relics. Who remembers the summer of 37 in Sportsman's Park, St. Louis? Who really cares? To the intolerant, they become merely tiresome, their stories ever more vague, ever more threadbare, ever more diffused in inconsequential details. The old ball players sense this. Their approach becomes tentative and apologetic. You greet them a bit too enthusiastically, offer a drink and a smile, and move on feeling faintly saddened. But DiMaggio is not simply an old baseball player. He is captain of that particular team, the man the other old ball players call the big guy. He times his public appearances skillfully, so that he never quite recedes, nor is he ever overexposed. He grants interviews infrequently, but when he does, he tells a story or two vividly, playing down his great skills with careful modesty. The skills, he understands, speak for themselves. When they began to fade, he stepped out of baseball. No one had to shove him off the stage. He weighed an offer of $100,000 to play for the Yankees in 1952 against his profound professional pride. He was time-weary and suffering from arthritis. He reduced this to a simple issue, money versus dignity. Ever the prideful man, he walked away from the Yankee contract and the fields of praise where he had played Major League Baseball for 13 years. Sports writers composed columns that read like hymns, they praised his talent, his manner, his long-boned grace, and his sure sense of who he was. Three years later, in 1954, he married Marilyn Monroe, 
that phenomenon of innocence and lust, blonde hair and parted lips, the squirming nude on the calendar who aspired to play a Dostoevsky heroine. He had always liked showgirls. His first wife was a minor starlet. But now he was moving out of the clubby sporting scene into the harsher, driving world of Hollywood. He doesn't like Hollywood. It is too public, too shrill, too naked for him. But he had chosen a Hollywood star who was newly famous, seductive, witty, exhibitionistic, and coy, and who wanted, or believed she wanted, a merry family, a golden career, culture, and motherhood all at once. He wanted, as far as anyone knows, the most beautiful housewife in the world. They split within nine months, with gossip columnists swarming over their lawn on a day of locusts. The press, which traffics in tri-